We are on iTunes. Search Death, Dying, and Other Things to find us, rate us, and subscribe. We've heard the stories since we were children. Deep in the forest, that's where it'll get you. You'll find it up in the mountains. It lives at the bottom of the lake. You'll never be heard from again. Everyone knows it. Some have even seen it. But despite years of hunting, no one's ever caught it on camera. There's something romantic about it, don't you think? That there could be a creature, a consciousness, a cryptid, deep in the unexplored parts of our world. There's the Jersey Devil, said to be the 13th child of a witch and the devil himself. The child born misshapen, twisted, a monster, with a goat's head, hooves, bat wings, a forked tail. It grew quickly to 20 feet long, thrashing about the house, before flapping its wings and disappearing up the chimney. It's been seen around the Pine Barrens of New Jersey ever since. There's the Mothman, a large man with 10-foot wings and red eyes seen around Point Pleasant, West Virginia from 1966 to 1967. The legend of the Mothman holds it as a herald of doom, and the being has been blamed for everything from the disappearance of a family dog to the collapse of the Silver Bridge, which killed 46 people. Then there's my personal favorite, the Flatwoods Monster, a 10-foot extraterrestrial with a large black body covered in an exoskeleton or a robotic suit, depending on who you ask, and a glowing face. The otherworldly creature's head is said to be shaped like an upside-down spade like you'd find on a playing card and feature glowing red eyes. It has stringy arms that end in clawed hands. It often appears with its glowing red spacecraft nearby. Most people think that the Flatwoods monster is just the result of some freaked-out West Virginians seeing a large barn owl while walking through the woods after dark. But what if... This month, we have two stories about creatures. In the first, my dad's only campfire story, a father tells his son the last campfire story the boy ever wants to hear. In the second, the haystackers of Humboldt County, a young man goes to work on his uncle's farm and learns a horrible truth about the food chain. Death and dying are the thresholds between this world and the next, the boundary between light and dark, the barrier between worlds, and that's where we're going. We are going into the shadows to bring you stories of horror and heartbreak. From MWHS, this is Death, Dying, and Other Things. I'm Justin Buskey. Stay with us. still see all the relics if I really close my eyes and concentrate. Relics of my dad's past life as an avid outdoorsman. 
mounted largemouth bass, taxidermied badgers, knives as big as a man's forearm, racks full of guns. This was before safes were widely recommended, and lock up your guns was a common mantra, you see. Tents and lanterns and compasses. Everything you could possibly need for a night under the stars. He had a whole room devoted to these things, but I hadn't known him to camp or even hike a day in my short life. I was seven years old, and I had found my way into this room of wonders for the hundredth time, even though my dad repeated robotically on an almost daily basis that I should never go in there. But I couldn't help it. I wanted to camp. I wanted him to take me. I was forbidden from anything that might keep me out in the forest after dark. That meant no camping, no hiking, no scouts. And there was no arguing either. He wouldn't have it, not from me, not from my mom. His word on this issue was final. So I was there, standing in his stupid altar to the outdoors, when he caught me again and he smacked me across the face. I could see the regret in his eyes immediately. I ran to my room and sobbed for an hour. He didn't follow me. It wasn't until my 10th birthday that I brought up camping again. After I blew out my candles, my mom asked me what I wished for, and I said it. I want dad to take me camping. The air left the room, and everyone, my mom, my sister, and my brother, all looked at the old man. He stood there looking at me, and I could see that he could see what he was doing to me, depriving his son of a life outdoors. He agreed to set up the tent in the backyard with me and sleep there for one night. That would be step one, and that would be good enough for me. That weekend, we set up a tent in the backyard just like he promised. He set a fire going in the fire pit just before dark. We roasted hot dogs on sticks and then marshmallows. He was tense at first, but after a while, he loosened up. After s'mores, I asked my dad to go inside and tell my mom to stop looking through the window at us. On the back of that successful, well, less a camping trip and more a minor excursion into the backyard, I convinced him to take me again, take me out into the wilderness this time. I could tell even that small backyard camp gave my dad the itch again. He was hungry for nature. I had won. My taste of sweet victory was too short-lived, though. I had to wait until the next summer to go camping again, and to a ten-year-old kid, that was basically forever. It was late into the season, my dad said, and the nights were getting cold. But he promised it would be worth the wait. We camped together for two years this way, starting small, and each time we'd go a little bit further and stay a little bit longer. Up rivers and down rivers and into forests and alongside lakes, it was everything I thought it would be. The only thing we didn't do on these trips was talk. I mean... We talked, we talked a lot. I had a good relationship with my dad. He'd ask me about school and friends and girls, we'd laugh. He was genuinely interested in me, but he never talked about himself, especially when I'd asked him to tell me about his old camping trips. He'd clam up 
refuse, and in the worst cases, yell, tell me off, tell me to stop being nosy. Can't you leave the past in the past? He'd shout. It's not even your past. It's mine. He was right. It was late in the season of our second year camping. We had been hiking for a couple of hours. Our target was a stream deep in the forest. Best trout fishing in the state, according to my dad. And its remoteness meant we could catch way more than legal, cook them all up over the campfire, and feast each night. I was excited. When we got there, it was beautiful. Probably the most beautiful spot we had camped in the two years since we started. This clear, quick stream bubbled past us. There was a little pool extending on one side of the stream that we could swim in. The water was cold and crisp. There were still a few hours fishing left in the day when we got there, and that, too, was perfect. Our lines could barely hit the surface before being hit. We set up camp with two hours before sundown, and my dad went off to gather firewood. You're still too small, he said. I don't think he quite believed it, but he was still holding something back from me. For all our trips, nine and all, I kept exact records. He never really taught me anything. He did all the work, building the tent, building the fire, stringing the poles, chopping the wood. The most I got to help was in the rare instance he asked me to hand him something. So he gathered the wood and built the fire and we had dinner and we sat and watched the fire and he gave me a few sips of his beer and laughed when I choked and twisted my face like I had eaten rotten meat. And before I knew it, it was time to turn in. I looked at my dad and asked for a campfire story. You sure? He asked. A scary one, I insisted. I was 13 now a teenager, and I was sure I could handle it. Okay. Do you want to hear about why I stopped going camping before you were born? My head was swimming. The secret, the secret information, of course I wanted to hear. Now keep in mind, this is all secondhand, and I'm recounting this some 20 years on. Take it with a grain of salt, sure, but just understand, I can still see his face. My dad's, as he told me the story. I believed him. I still believe him. I believe everything he told me was the truth, and so should you. He was deep in Wisconsin's driftless area, on a fishing trip for trout, and he was alone. This wasn't unusual for him, camping alone. Sure, sometimes he'd convince a brother or a friend, or even my mom on certain occasions, to go along with him. But he always took at least one trip per year alone. Time to relax. Time to reflect. Time to just be with himself. He had spent most of the first day hiking into the forest, looking for the perfect stream or river to set up camp. When he came to it, a river, he wouldn't tell me which one, about a half a mile wide at the spot he had found. Shallow and rocky in all the right spots, but with a deep, fast-moving center. It probably wasn't the best spot to actually fish, but it was beautiful, and the fast-moving water at the center of the river gave off a hum that relaxed him. Plus, all the way on the other side of the river, another man had already set up camp. It would be nice to have a little company, 
without the social obligation to actually talk to him. He seemed like a nice enough guy, my dad said. I mean, for as much as I could see of him. Which wasn't much at all, I guess. My dad was halfway into setting up his tent before the other man, already fishing on the other side of the river, noticed. The stranger waved to my dad, excited to see someone else. By the time my dad had set up camp, it was dark. There would be no fishing the first day. That was okay, though. He brought food just in case he didn't catch anything. He built a fire and whipped up dinner. He saw that the man across the river was doing the same. My dad raised his tin cup to the man, and the man did the same. The rushing of the river seemed to settle in the late hours of the evening, at least according to my dad. That first night, he laid and listened to it shrink from a roaring river to a babbling brook and drifted off to sleep. The next day, he got up early, getting into his waders and out into the river just as the sun started rising. The river had picked up. The fishing was good. The man across the river joined him a couple hours later, and the two of them started going cast for cast, fish for fish, a little friendly competition among strangers. It was only a few days after the solstice. The day was long. There was lots of good fishing to be had, only small breaks for sandwiches, but around mid-afternoon, my dad knew it was time to stop for the day and chop firewood for the night. If he didn't do this now, he reasoned, he'd regret it later. My ears perked up. This, I thought, was my dad's first camping lesson. Always chop firewood early. He grabbed his axe and started gathering downed logs from nearby his campsite. When you think you've got enough, he said, double it. Another lesson. I couldn't believe it. He chopped wood for a couple hours. Building his firewood pile to the point, it would last not only that night, he wagered, but the following night as well. You get good at figuring how much you're going to need, he said. He finished his job just as the sun was falling behind the trees on its way down over the horizon, just in time to build the night's fire. He cooked up that day's catch, cracked open a few beers, and listened to the river rush by. At around 9.30 when the sun had set and the river was settling, the man across the river brought out a harmonica. My dad listened to the stranger's harmonica, stared into the fire, and drank another beer before turning in for the night. All that beer caught up with him a few hours later. He crawled out of the tent and stumbled over to the river, unzipped, and listened to the stream hit the river's now lazy water. He heard a twig snap across the river. He looked up and saw it, a large shadow moving across the stranger's campsite. He knew what to do when a bear entered camp, so he grabbed his pans and started hollering, bear, and banging his pans together. It worked, because the bear got spooked and ran off. He woke the stranger, too, because the stranger stumbled out of his tent, looking for a weapon, and when there wasn't a bear in his camp anymore, my dad shouted over to him. Ran off, that way. Thanks, the man across the river said. Don't mention it. The next day's fishing was even better, if that's possible. The river was raging again drowning out any other sound the forest made. My dad and the man across the river got into the habit of throwing a thumbs up every time one of them landed a fish. 
It was another idyllic day of fly fishing, another relaxing day in the forest. A bear sighting wasn't going to deter either of these men. But if there was one thing my dad couldn't stop thinking about, it was this. If it was a black bear that he spotted in the stranger's camp, it was a hell of a black bear. That night, they raised their beers to each other, sat at their respective fires, and went to sleep, my dad a little bit after the stranger did. My dad woke up to yelling and banging pans. The river, again, was calm. The commotion was intense, yelling, more like screaming. Not the calm shouting of a man used to dealing with bears. He rushed out of the tent, just in time to see the stranger chasing the bear out of his camp. This time, with the stranger providing scale, my dad could see just how big the thing was. Twice as big as the biggest black bear my dad had ever seen, easily. The man across the river kept banging and banging and banging those pans long after the shadow had disappeared from my dad's view. When he finally stopped, the stranger stared off in that direction for minutes, making sure it wasn't coming back. Even from his vantage point across the river, my dad could tell the stranger was shaken up. You okay? My dad shouted. Damn thing had its head in my tent. You should get your fish guts and throw them in the river. That's probably what's attracting the bear. Ain't no fish guts over here, the man across the river replied. And that ain't no bear. The stranger went back into his tent, zipped it up, my dad took this to mean he didn't want to talk about it anymore, and he went back into his tent too, and after a lot of difficulty, fell back asleep. The next day, the stranger didn't come out of his tent until around midday and didn't try fishing. He didn't really make eye contact with my dad, which didn't really matter anyway because the fishing was poor and my dad didn't catch anything. This was my dad's last night out there and he wanted to make the most of it. So after he built his fire for the night, he raised his cup to the stranger across the river, but noticed he hadn't even built a fire. My dad ate his dinner, a little disappointed, went into his tent, and couldn't sleep. He listened to the river calm down, to the crickets chirp, to the far-off howling of wolves, and then he heard the twigs snapping across the river. He listened hard, more cracking. He rushed out of his tent in time to see a shadow moving into the stranger's camp. He yelled, he hollered, he banged his pans. Nothing would dissuade the bear this time. The stranger got out of his tent and yelled and flailed his arms and banged his pans and the shadow stood there, silent in the middle of the camp. My dad grabbed a rifle, but knew it was useless, knew there was no way to be accurate in the dark. Without warning, the shadow lunged at the stranger. It raised an arm and swiped at the stranger's chest, but the stranger managed to dodge the bear's claw. He wasn't so lucky the second time. The bear moved lightning fast and knocked the stranger to the ground, and it was all over. The man screamed. The bear growled. My dad stood across the river helpless, listening to the crunching of bone and the squishing of organs. When the screaming finally stopped, the shadow rose up, standing tall, 
and two eyes caught the moonlight. This was no bear. Its frame was slight, its head was large, its too many limbs had too many joints, and its teeth shone even there across the river, catching the moonlight just like its eyes. Whatever it was that stared at my dad, neither of them moved. My dad from terror and the thing across the river from, well, my dad says it was threatening him or warning him or both. I could feel it. The thing was warning me. If I went out into the wilderness again, it would find me. As the last words escaped my dad's lips, he let out a sigh. I sat there slack-jawed, staring at my father, not wanting to believe him, but deep, deep down knowing he was telling the truth. A twig snapped just outside our camp. I saw a shadow move in the trees behind him, and two eyes caught the moonlight. I don't go camping anymore, either. If you haven't already, follow us on Twitter at DeathDyingPod, or like us on Facebook. We'd love to hear what you think. Also, sign up for our mailing list at DeathDyingAndOtherThings.com to keep up to date on everything related to the podcast. Up next, we're off to the farmland of Iowa. I was 18 when my mom sent me to work with my uncle on his farm. I don't blame her. I was a fuck-up. Not like my sister or my brother. They were perfect. What do they say? Perfect specimens. Athletes and mathletes. Scholarship magnets. On to bigger and better things. When I graduated high school, it was different. No prospects, my mom would say. No prospects, no ambition. It's not that I was stupid. I'm not stupid. At least I don't think so. But I was lazy, I'll admit. Real lazy. 1.0 lazy. She'd married out of the working class, married my dad, the lawyer. But she knew her family's blood when she saw it, and I was certainly that. You'll fit right in there, she said. You'll work the land, learn about farming. Farming's been my family's trade for generations. That sounded good, if I'm being sincere. Honest work, hard work, noble work. I liked the sound of it. My uncle had his farm in Humboldt County, Iowa, two states over. I'd only ever lived in the city, and the vastness of the land out there gave me the fits when I finally arrived. I wasn't used to seeing those distances. And the fresh air. The fresh air made me sick. My uncle's name is Jerry, but I was greeted by my aunt, Mary. Jerry and Mary, funny. They had a daughter, Karen, two years younger than me. Finally driving age, but let's be honest, she'd been driving a tractor for years. Mary got me settled. Jerry had gone into town and would be back before dinner, and Karen had gone with. I would have the guest room for the foreseeable future. 
They grew hay, acres of the stuff. They were a cattle ranch, but as it turns out, cows need to eat too. The growing season was winding down. It was late summer by this point, and so most of the day-to-day efforts of the farm, after taking the cattle to pasture, of course, were spent in the hay fields, gathering the stuff into large circular bales that they could use to feed the cattle deep into the winter. That's where we'd start, my aunt figured, in the hay fields. That's where they needed the most help, and that's where I'd be spending most of my time with my uncle. We loaded up the old beater pickup, and were out in the fields in five minutes. Now, I didn't know I was allergic to hay, but the moment I stepped out of the pickup and into the field, that itching in the back of my throat grew to a fire, and my mucus glands unleashed a torrent of the thick stuff down the front of my face. There was no controlling it. I was sneezing onto the ground, onto the front of my shirt, onto my aunt. I held it together as best I could, but my eyes started burning too, watering within a couple of minutes. I say watering, but really I was crying. There was no getting around that fact. Maybe I missed the city. Maybe I regretted moving out there. I stood up straight, despite my now damp condition, and listened to my aunt explain the process. Cutting at step one, of course, then a day or two later, when it's dry enough, we'll come out here with the baler. We drag the baler behind the tractor. It gathers up as much of the alfalfa as possible and puts it all together in these bales. She pointed over to one of the three large cylinders that had already made a home in the hay field. My Aunt Mary walked over to it, and I stumbled after her. I was surprised how big the thing was up close. At least seven feet by seven feet. Probably over a ton, Aunt Mary said. We use a big fork on the front of the tractor to lift them into a trailer, and then we'll haul them over to that storage shed when it gets later in the season. For now, we just leave them out here. Jerry will take you along tomorrow. All right, let's get back, she said, in response to the 50th or 60th time I snorted the snot pouring out of my nose. You city people, I got something that'll take care of that. Aunt Mary was shoving my face over a pot of boiling water with all manner of herbs and oils just when the door opened and my uncle and cousin walked in. Near instantaneously, the mucus broke up and ran into the pot, and the burning in my throat and eyes stopped. I could breathe again. Allergies? Uncle Jerry asked. I guess so, I said. You'll get used to it. He was right. Not for the first two weeks. Those were awful. But on the third week... After working in the field every day, I woke up and just didn't itch anymore. Immersion therapy, my uncle said, smirking and smacking my back. Every day of those first couple weeks was the same. We'd wake up as the sun was rising and I'd help my cousin Karen get the cows out to pasture. My uncle would meet me in the pickup around half hour later with a cup of coffee that I'd gulped down. We'd grab the tractor and head to the field to bale the hay. For ten or twelve hours, we'd bend and lift and wrap and drive and latch and unlatch with only a minimal break for lunch. Then, we'd head back to the house just after dark, and I'd eat more than I'd ever eaten in my life. I was so hungry during those first two weeks, I couldn't eat enough food. I would shovel meat and potatoes and carrots and peas and bread into my unending mouth. It's all the labor, Aunt Mary said looking at my stuffed mouth. Your body isn't used to this much activity. That was certainly true. 
I was taking aspirin on a daily basis and needed regular ice packs to manage my sore muscles. And the sleep. It happened as soon as I hit the pillow each night and was deeper than I had ever slept before. By the third week, we had about 20 large bales of hay in the field. But Uncle Jerry said we were moving too slowly. We should have at least 30. We'd have to pick up the pace. It was a night during the fourth week I was there that I first started hearing it. My room, the guest room, was on the second floor of the farmhouse. My window overlooked the fields, and I had since gotten used to the allergies. I had been leaving the window open at night to get some of that cool late summer night breeze. It woke me, the noise I heard. The first time I was awake in the middle of the night since I arrived at the farm. A whistle, or a shriek, an announcement, or a warning of some sort. It started far off, probably in the surrounding wooded areas. I thought it was wolves or coyotes at first. It sounded vaguely canine to me, like howling or growling or something like that. When it got closer, moving into the fields of the farm, I could tell it was something else, like words of a language I wasn't familiar with. I couldn't tell if the sounds came from one thing or several things, but the shrieking voice moved through the dark field below my window, back and forth, away from the farmhouse, then back toward it, babbling, screaming. A possum? Was it a possum? What do possums sound like? Then it faded away, gone just as suddenly as it had arrived, the noise and whatever was making it. I asked Karen while we were taking the cows to pasture the next morning if she had heard it. Nah, but look where you are. You're going to hear a lot of strange things around here, she said, closing the gate behind the last of the cattle. You think it could have been a possum? Sure, could have been a lot of things. You ever hear anything like that? Like screeching tires and screaming children? I heard a lot of things out here, she said, ending the conversation. And you will too. When the sun had finally risen, and Uncle Jerry had picked me up in the old beater pickup, and I had guzzled my coffee, and we finally made it into the field for another day's work, I noticed two of the large bales of hay were not where we had left them. They were close together, side by side even. We hadn't ever made that a habit. Once the baler was full, we'd dump the bale right where we were and start again. But somehow, three of these one-ton cylinders of hay had been moved in the night. I asked my uncle. Must have just worked out that way, he said. Yeah, but I said before he interrupted me. You know what? I came out last night and moved them. You did? Sure did. Why? Listen, you want to sit here asking questions or you want to get to work so we can get our job done? He jumped up into the tractor and started it up, ending the conversation with the loud tractor engine. I had decided there were two, maybe three distinct voices visiting the farmland each night. One high and droning like a baby's crying, and one short and staccato like a record skipping. Each horrible sound that drifted up to my room sent chills down my spine. It was, to put it lightly, like nothing I had ever heard before.
Karen continued to blame the noises on animals of different sorts. There's plenty of weird animals out here. You ever heard a rabbit die? They let out the most blood-curdling scream you ever heard. No, never, I responded. Would you like to? She had settled on pack of coyotes as the likely culprit of all the racket. Just the way things are out here, she said. Not for lack of trying, but I couldn't see anything from my window on the second floor. It just got too dark at night out there on the farm. No matter how long I'd give my eyes to adjust, they just couldn't pierce that kind of darkness. And to add to my unease, whenever I was at the window, I felt eyes on me, like I was being watched. By the weekend, ten of those seven-foot bales had been gathered together in a semicircular enclosure, stacked one on top of the other. I'd taken to calling it the altar because, honestly, that's what it looks like. My uncle kept insisting it was his doing. You'll thank me in a few weeks, he said. But when I'd suggest I'd help with this project, or offer to do it myself, he'd get defensive. We didn't bring you here because I'm old and weak. I dropped it, but I knew my uncle wasn't the one moving those bales of hay and could not, for the life of me, figure out why everyone was being so nonchalant about it. I called my mom sometime after the twelfth bale had been moved to the altar. Maybe this wasn't such a good idea. I didn't like it as much as I thought I would. Just give it until the season ends, okay? My mom said. Then, if you still don't like it, we'll bring you home and figure something else out, okay? Just see this through, okay? Okay, I said. Okay. A few days and a few stacked bales after I spoke with my mom, a storm hit. Wind, rain, hail, stalled work on the field, kept the cattle indoors. Most we could do was be patient and wait it out, Aunt Mary said. But after the first day, with no end to the storm in sight, Uncle Jerry started to get very concerned about the hay bales. They're going to get ruined if this rain doesn't let up soon. They're going to get soaked and soggy, and they're going to topple over. The second day of rain, he became increasingly irritated. What the hell's going on here? This some kind of joke? Never rains like this. What the hell is going on? By the third day, he was panicked. We gotta do something. All that hay's gonna get ruined. All those stacks are gonna topple. What are we gonna do? He didn't sleep through that night. Or the next night either. He just sat on the porch watching the rain. After midnight on the fifth night of the storm, rain coming down as hard as ever, he woke me. Need you to help with something. What's that, Uncle Jerry? We gotta go check on the hay, he said, exhausted. What? It's still raining. We gotta go check, son. It's important. I dressed, and Uncle Jerry gave me a raincoat and some rain boots. I didn't have my own. And we headed out. The rain was coming down so thick, the pickup's headlights weren't making much difference. Just a solid sheet of water, scattering the light in front of us. We nearly plowed right into the altar of hay bales, but missed it at just the last minute. Uncle Jerry was right. The bales were destroyed. Soggy. Broken apart. 
and the structure that my uncle claimed was his doing was toppled and scattered by the wind. What was left was a massive pile of soggy grass. He got out of the truck and for some reason, I followed. We walked around the massive pile. There was nothing we could do. We should have come out earlier, he said. And on what? I asked him. Tarped it, something, he said, disappointment and, interestingly, a tiny bit of fear in his voice. I looked down at the ground around my feet. Mud. The whole field was mud now. And in the mud, a track. A large track, right where I was standing. Three times as big as my own foot, and twice as many toes. All around the site, there were these tracks. Up and down the field, there were these tracks. My uncle turned toward the nearby woods, and then back to me. I looked through the pile of hay. In the center, something I hadn't noticed before. Chains and shackles. Just big enough to fit around a cow's neck, I'd wager. I looked up at my uncle just as the fear took hold of both him and I. They're going to come for us now, he said. A shriek echoed from the woods. We jumped into the pickup. My uncle handed me his shotgun from underneath the seat and floored it. The tire spun. We'd sunken into the mud. Shit, Uncle Jerry shouted. Get over here. He grabbed the shotgun, opened the door, and jumped out. I slid over to the driver's seat. In the rear view, I could see my uncle grip the back of the truck. Hit it, he yelled to me. I floored it. Nothing. Again! I hit the pedal, and the tires spun. Helpless. My uncle slipped and fell into the mud. I heard him shout. He scrambled to his feet once more, braced himself against the truck, and shouted, Now! This time, the tires caught. He hopped into the bed of the truck and screamed before firing a shotgun. Back at the farmhouse, I helped my uncle out of the bed of the truck and into the house. The color didn't come back to him for two days. I didn't stay through the end of the season. This episode of Death, Dying, and Other Things was produced and edited by me, Justin Buskey. The stories, both My Dad's Only Campfire Story and The Haystackers of Humboldt County, were written by me, too. You can follow me on Twitter, at Justin Buskey. Intro and outro music is by the prolific Eric Warnke. Check him out on SoundCloud. Special thanks to Full Moons and The Whistling Wind. Death, Dying, and Other Things is a production of MWHS. New episodes the first Thursday of every month. This has been Death, Dying, and Other Things, and I've been your host, Justin Buskey. Stay out of the shadows. <laughs> <laughs>